This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde ponders Nadim Zahawi's career trajectory. Sam Wollaston tries his hand at the fastest growing sport in the US, pickleball. An actor, Michelle Williams, discusses her Oscar-nominated performance playing Steven Spielberg's mother and what it taught her about parenting. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, the former Chancellor, Nadim Zahawi, once said of Boris Johnson that he should do the right thing and go. It could be, points out Marina Hyde, time for him to take his own advice. Read by Robin Holdaway. Further inspirational developments in British public life as yet another inquiry is launched into a serving member of the government. Having spent a week claiming that party chair and former Chancellor Nadim Zahawi had addressed the murky matter of his taxes in full, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak declared on Monday, I have asked our independent adviser to get to the bottom of everything deep waters and all that. It's good Sunak makes it sound like a real dredging exercise for which hazmat divers have been deployed and a forensic dentist put on standby. After her dignified exit two weeks ago, we had to endure a lot of tedious discourse as to whether or not Jacinda Ardern could really have it all. After Zahawi's posturously undignified decision not to exit this week, you'd hope number 10 would be asking, can Nadim really have it all? A top job in government and a tax bill as slim as Jonathan Gullis's intellect? No, would seem to be the obvious answer, but it doesn't seem to be the one on which Zahawi has alighted. In order to ensure the independence of this process, he said on Monday, You will understand that it would be inappropriate to discuss this issue any further. Any further? He hasn't discussed it at all. 
unless you count legal threats for smears, that seem to have turned out to be facts. But, yet again, the public finds itself in a familiar limbo, being told it would not be proper to preempt the findings of yet another formal inquiry. These things must be cheaper by the dozen. The Justice Secretary is under formal investigation for bullying. The guy who was Chancellor is under formal investigation over his tax affairs. He is now party chairman, charged with representing the government on the public stage. His predecessor in the role of Chancellor, one Rishi Sunak, was found to have a wife who used non-dom status to avoid paying UK tax on her vast fortune. They had an inquiry related to that, though only into how the information got leaked. Sunak's predecessor but one in the role of Prime Minister was himself the subject of a number of protracted inquiries by everyone from standards officials to senior civil servants to the police, whose results we were forever being warned it would not be proper to preempt. The Privileges Committee investigation into Boris Johnson is still continuing and soon to reassume centre stage. There are now also two new inquiries into the appointment of the BBC's chairman. Amid allegations, he assisted Johnson in securing a loan of up to £800,000 weeks before the then-PM appointed him to the role. Whatever any of this is, are the right words for the permanent state of investigative limbo in which government exists really appropriate and proper? As far as Zahawi goes, the fact that will be immediately obvious to a public currently staring down the business end of the January tax return deadline is that the then-Chancellor, having to pay millions of pounds of avoided tax and a penalty to HMRC, for which he was responsible for at the time, is a total and utter piss-take. Still, I'm excited for rookie ministerial ethics chief Laurie Magnus, who now has his first case. It'll be fun to find out Laurie's procedural style. Will it be the every-stone-left-unturned approach favoured by his predecessor, Lord Gite? Or maybe the silent despair that engulfed Gite's predecessor, Alex Allen, who opted to resign when his lengthy investigation finding that Pretty Patel had breached the ministerial code was overruled by Boris Johnson quickly deciding she hadn't. Arguably the big question for Magnus to scrawl on the investigation whiteboard is who taxes the taxman? Like me, you wouldn't want to preempt anything, but you would hope that the guy who had ultimate oversight of the inland revenue at the time did not actually spend an unspecified chunk of his tenure trying to negotiate his own multi-million pound shortcomings in this department. As for Sunak, his decision to prolong this with an ethics investigation simply underlines his weakness and poor judgement, as well as landing a Prime Minister with his specific domestic vulnerabilities on this front in an awful lot of stories with the word tax in the headline. Of course, Zahawi is frequently described as personable and well-liked among Conservative MPs, 
which, in light of information, serves as another reminder that not paying proper tax is the acceptable form of sociopathy. Then again, you can tell quite a lot about Zahawi's situation by the calibre or absence of his defenders. On Tuesday morning, the government served up Home Office Minister Chris Philp as the broadcast round sacrifice. Philp has been involved in multiple firms that have gone bust, in some cases reportedly owing money to the taxman. I note he describes himself as a serial entrepreneur, which is a bit like someone with syphilis describing themselves as a hopeless romantic. Like others sent over the top in recent days, Philp on Tuesday morning lent chiefly on the formulation that something or other is my understanding or that something or other was the Prime Minister's understanding. Yet, there are clearly a whole lot of things left to be understood. The public is presented with the bizarre spectacle of people who work with each other every day, claiming that, we don't know. Then why don't you save everyone a lot of drawn-out pain and just ask? You have to wonder if anyone at the top of government talks to each other. To remind ourselves of the absurdist timeline of all this, Zahawi was only appointed Chancellor when Sunak resigned in the dying days of Johnson's government. The equivalent of earning your dream promotion to second officer on the Hindenburg shortly after bits of its ashes started raining down on New Jersey. Barely a few hours later, even Zahawi seemed to have clocked this state of affairs, releasing a statement on Treasury letterhead explaining that he had subsequently tried to get Johnson to resign. Yesterday, I made it clear to the Prime Minister that there was only one direction where this was going and that he should leave with dignity. I am heartbroken that he hasn't listened, this hand. Prime Minister, Nadim concluded, you know in your heart what the right thing to do is and go now. Overall impressions? Nadim's grammar and sense of to whom exactly this document is addressed are all over the shop. But there is a kernel of good advice in there for the situation in which he now finds himself. If only he'd let himself take it. And take it now. That was How Many Divers Will Rishi Sunak Need? to plumb the murky depths of Nadim Zahawi's tax affairs by Marina Hyde Read by Robin Holdaway Next A gentle cross between tennis, badminton and ping pong Pickleball has swept across America and is now making quite the impression here Sam Wollaston bravely dons a paddle to unravel the sport's baffling lexicon and start dinking Read by William Vanderpoy the sports hall of a school in New Malden, southwest London, may seem an unlikely venue for a revolution. But here, on an icy Thursday night, a revolution of sorts is taking place. Comrades are facing off, honing their skills and sharpening their reflexes. A group of raw new recruits, a motley rabble of women and men, sucked inexorably into the cause, looks on. The local commander, 
a no-nonsense but cheerful woman named Lou, will take them to the end of the hall to issue them with equipment, show them how to use it, and explain the rules of combat. I say them, I mean us, for I am one of these raw recruits. And our weapons? Not muskets and bayonets, but paddles and whiffle balls. Paddles are like outsize table tennis bats, those cheese boards with handles, or indeed paddles. A whiffle ball is a light plastic one with holes, not to be confused with a Harry Potter quaffle. Welcome to the Pickleball Revolution. Pickleball is a cross between tennis, badminton and ping-pong. Played indoors or out on a court about a quarter the size of a tennis court and with a slightly lower net. It was invented by three dads on Bainbridge Island near Seattle in 1965 for their children and is now the fastest growing sport in the US. More than a million Americans took it up during the pandemic, bringing the total to nearly five million. Among them, Melinda and Bill Gates, various Kardashians, friends Matthew Perry and Leonardo DiCaprio. And it's now over here. The school sports hall in New Malden is just one of 270 pickleball venues in the UK and there are now estimated to be about 7,000 players. Pickleball England is aiming for 25,000 members by 2025. Two of the regulars here, Emma Robbins and Elaine Brown, both in their 50s, tell me why they like it. It's such an easy game to pick up. There aren't too many rules. And before you know it, you're having a little dink, says Emma. I too am hoping to have a little dink soon. Whatever one of those is. It's good exercise. It's strategic. It can be as hard or as easy as you want it to be. And most of the time, it's just good fun, adds Elaine. The size of the courts and the weight and speed of the ball, all less than in tennis, mean the learning curve is less steep. It's easier on the body and it's a game for all ages. Over there is Alan in his 80s. Johnny is 24 and that's his dad, Patch. Elaine has bought her son Joe, who's 23, for the first time. She's been banging on about it for ages, he moans. Pickleball is a family thing and a social thing, inclusive and friendly. Emma's partner is cheerful Lou. Louise Fournilier Stevens, head coach of London Pickleball. D does she mean her doubles partner? No, partner, partner. We met through pickleball, says Emma. Of course, who needs apps when there's pickleball? Oh, and Elaine is national over-50s women's double champion. Right, well, it's time for us virgins to get involved. Where Joe, retired Chris, who's 69, Gail and Dan, Anita and Neil, Sam from The Guardian and Militsa from Bulgaria. Lou shows us how to hold the paddle much as you'd hold a ping-pong bat, though it's best to keep fingers off the flat surface, otherwise they might get whiffled. And we practice pickleball keepy-uppy, hitting the ball up with one side of the paddle, then the other. The hall echoes with a percussive cacophony, the thwack of paddle on perforated plastic, 
the squeak of trainer sole on gym floor, as well as a warm buzz of chit-chat, banter and bonhomie. Next comes the dink. And up and over the net shot. Up and over. Up and over. The area near the net is known as the no-volley zone. Guess what you're not allowed to do here, says Lou. The area is also known as the kitchen. No one knows why, though most people have a joke about it, usually involving men not putting in an appearance in it enough, except perhaps at parties. In doubles, then, you can't have one of you hanging out at the net, smashing anything that comes your way. The serve is underarm, more about starting a point than trying to win it. An ace is rare in pickleball. The return has to bounce too. So no Navratilova-style serving and volleying, please. We are soon actually playing proper games, with some half-decent rallies. Even though we have been learning for no more than 45 minutes. You don't get to this stage in tennis for years. To be honest, I never really have done. In between points, you play to 11 only the serving side can score, we tap paddles with our partners, sportingly and encouragingly. What? Even if we've lost the point and it's all their fault? And now, I'm wondering if it's maybe all a teeny bit too... nice. I mean, fine in a Florida retirement village. Yeah, have a nice day! Even though it may well be your last. But here... On the mean streets of, checks notes, the royal borough of Kingston-upon-Thames, do we not perhaps want a bit more attitude in our exercise? I'm considering throwing a Nick Kyrgios wobbly. How easy is it to smash up one of these carbon fibre paddles? Plus, there's the elephant in the sports hall. That name. There are a couple of stories as to how it came to be called Pickleball. One is that the family dog of one of those dads on Bainbridge Island was called Pickles. The other is that it's a reference to something in rowing called a pickle boat, which is a crew of mixed abilities. But then, no one's heard of a pickle boat. So most people go with the dog story, even though it's less likely to be true, not least because when the game was born, Pickles the dog was yet to be. Anyway, it's a problem, isn't it, for a sport to be called pickleball if it wants to be taken seriously. No self-respecting kid is going to want to play pickleball, are they? Or dream of one day being a pickleballer. Well, none of this seems to be an issue for anyone else in my group. They think the name is both amusing and fitting. Lou says pickleball gets very competitive, pointing to the doubles match on the next court, which has turned into an epic Pinball, Volley and Dinkathon. They are also getting some serious exercise. I feel as if my workout has been quite gentle. But that's the thing about pickleball. You can play at any level. As my level increases, I will play with greater intensity. And it will. And I will. Because it turns out, I'm brilliant at pickleball. A total natural. Nimble of foot and thought. Powerful and masterful on the forehand, cunning on the back, and the deftest of dinkers. The only thing that might need a little work, Lou thinks, is the attitude. OK then, sign me up. Viva la Revolución!
That was How the World Went Crazy for Pickleball by Sam Wollaston. Read by William Vanderpoy. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, award-winning actor Michelle Williams has seen it all and she's channeling her experiences into playing Steven Spielberg's formidable mother in new film, The Fablemans. The result, discovers Catherine Shord, is an actor finally coming into her own. Read by Robin Holdaway. Michelle Williams is apologising for the camera angle. She's cross-legged on a bed and her iPhone keeps slipping down the pillows. Sometimes all I see is the duvet, sometimes something more mysterious. It's hard to find a place to put this, she says. I don't want to breastfeed you. It's 7am in Palm Springs, California. Last night, Williams was at a film gala. This morning, she's been up for two hours already. I thought I would be super accomplished and do this before he, the baby, woke. But he's jet-lagged and already woke at five. Williams's son was born last October. His brother, Hart, is two and a half. Their father is Williams's husband, the director Thomas Kale. She also has a 17-year-old, Matilda, from her relationship with the actor Heath Ledger. Williams wears a baggy white t-shirt and an expression of shining exhaustion. She speaks slowly, half-artist carefully considering her craft, half-drowsy from juggling red carpets and sunrise parenting. It's a really difficult age, she says, massaging her temples. To be able to work and meet the needs of both a toddler and an infant is pretty confounding. Any solution? She shrugs, only to abandon any sense of achievement. When you add small children into the mix, all of that vanishes and you feel like you're kind of no good at anything. I don't think there's really anything to solve other than getting comfortable with that sensation. She sits back and pours a pot of coffee down her throat. Williams is back on the awards circuit for The Fablemans. Two years ago, Steven Spielberg called to tell her he was making an autobiographical drama about his childhood. They chatted. Williams began to twig. For clarity's sake, she asked him, if I'm understanding correctly, are you asking me to play your beloved mother? He was. She still pinches herself. It's such an incredible once-in-a-lifetime role, she says. She's right. If Kate Blanchett hadn't made Tar last year, it'd win her an Oscar. It yet might. Williams is a powerhouse. Now 42, she commits to the women she plays with an emotional immediacy as ferocious as it is effective. Her 11 minutes in Manchester-by-the-Sea as a woman who has lost all three children in a house fire 
will upset me forever. She's clearly nice, sensitive, an empath. She's also tough. Ryan Gosling called her a cross between Brigitte Bardot and Clint Eastwood. Mitzi Fableman, the character based on Leah Spielberg, later Leah Adler, who died aged 97 in 2017, is also pretty formidable. Camp, theatrical, impulsive. A tornado zips past her house and she piles the kids into the car to chase it. Of course it's safe, she exclaims. I'm your mother. Every meal is served on disposable crockery, then grandly gathered into a plastic tablecloth and trashed. She suddenly buys a monkey. I think the way that she looked at her children was the first thing that I connected to, William says. She got down on her hands and knees with them, and she let them be the most important thing in the room. Not the dishes, not the vacuuming, not the kind of mundanity of daily life that we all so easily get absorbed in and overwhelmed by. She allowed herself to let those responsibilities fall away and become her children's playmate. Leah's dreams of being a concert pianist were shelved to care for her four children and devoted husband Arnold, a computer scientist, renamed Bert in the film and played by Paul Dano. But she still approached life as a series of crescendos, highly conscious of the power of performance. She redefined what a mother could be according to who she wanted to be, Williams says. She didn't let the times tell her how to behave, she made her own culture inside of her family, and then her children went on to make their own culture in the larger world, because it started in their home. That actually gives me the chills as I talk about it, she continues, proffering an arm, because I have young children, and I have an older child, and so I've gone through one childhood, and now I'm back in childhood, thinking about how to make this experientially rewarding and fun for all of us. Before we talk... I've been advised not to ask about Williams's children. In fact, she is blearily frank about being a nursing mother and theorises about parenthood with the fluency of someone who's been at it a while. Who's her best audience? I'm sure it's my daughter, she says like a shot. She is the person I have spent my adult life with. What first made Spielberg think she'd be a good match for his mother, he has said, was the secret energy that poured from her as Gwen Verdon in a miniseries about the dancer's marriage to Bob Fosse. Well, that's nice to hear, William says, raising an eyebrow. She never yawns, by the way. My sense is she's so tired she's beyond yawning. Life requires energy to live it, and when you have children, while they take energy from you, you also have to find a way to keep the energy in the room up, to meet them where they are with understanding and joy. The only way to get through early childhood is to find a way to engage deeply with the play and wonder that children offer us. She wedges her phone by the headboard. It keels slowly over. Such gadgets are the archenemy of creative child-rearing, she says. What she fears is becoming a list-making, goal-driven human robot, because the phones and the computers are telling us that they are more important than we are, and that the world is inside of them and they're so alluring, and they have so much power, a still gaze down the lens. I find myself in a struggle with it, and I want to win. When she was small, Michelle Williams wanted to be a boxer. Heavyweight, not feather or welter, Mike Tyson was her idol. Home was rural Montana. My very early memories are of riding bareback on horses and wandering the plains looking for arrowheads, 
What I want for myself and my work is to feel like that again, to feel open-ended. What drives me is to taste that again. The horizons narrowed when she was nine, and the family, her mother, Carla, father, Larry, his three older children and a younger sister, Paige, moved to San Diego. Larry is a financial guru who twice stood for Republican office and co-authored a book seeking to prove the historical veracity of the Bible. He currently runs a thriving website offering market forecasts, trading tips and an online course that culminates in the graduation from the Larry Williams University, which has its own heraldry. His daughter is a good advert for his skills. Aged 16, a young Michelle won the Robbins Trading Company World Cup Championship of Futures Trading by turning $10,000 into $100,000, the second highest profit in the tournament's history. Larry and Carla are now divorced and he and Michelle are no longer close. At 15, she legally emancipated from her parents with their approval so she could work adult hours in Los Angeles, having notched up enough credits as a child actor, Lassie, Baywatch, to suggest she could make a living. Williams moved solo at 15 to Burbank, California, a.k.a. Studio City. There are some really disgusting people in the world, she has said of the experience, and I met some of them. The emancipation from parental oversight appears to have stretched a little further than formality. Supper was always pizza, as was breakfast and lunch. She didn't see a dentist for a decade. At 17, she won the part of wealthy newcomer Jen on teen drama Dawson's Creek. It jump-started her career and parachuted her to the safety of small-town North Carolina, where the show shot for nine months a year. But Williams was less at ease with the glossy snogging than her co-stars. She queried the scripts and asked questions about motivation, later saying, My taste was in contradiction to what I was doing every single day. These days, she's more reconciled to her soapy origins. Without having first played Jen, she said last November, she could never have attempted Marilyn Monroe or Gwen Verdon. Nor would she have known how to handle being Steven Spielberg's mother without having been Mary Beth's granddaughter. Mary Beth is Mary Beth Peel, the Broadway stalwart who played Williams's on-screen grandmother and to whom Williams recently dedicated an award. I was totally alone, she said in her speech. She was gripping and bursting with energy. She showed me that creativity was more than a mere profession. And all of this vitality was miraculously turned in my direction. Her smiling face was looking at me and she called me her girl. Williams blossomed in her warmth. After the show ended in 2003, she went full throttle with the artist's life moved to New York, starred in The Cherry Orchard, made movies with Wim Wenders, Land of Plenty, and Tom McCarthy, the station agent. In 2004, she signed on for Brokeback Mountain, Ang Lee's gay cowboy film, in which she plays the wife of Heath Ledger's closeted Ennis. The pair fell in love after Williams twisted her knee in a snow scene and Ledger took her to hospital. They got engaged and, at the end of 2005, Matilda was born. Two years later, they split up amicably. Five months after that, Ledger died of an accidental drug overdose. He was 28, Williams 27. Everything changed. Paparazzi camped outside her Brooklyn home, 
a conveyor belt of house guests didn't staunch the scrutiny or the loneliness. That feeling of being watched goes very, very deep, she says today, because it cuts you off from living your life. And for a while, it felt like such an impediment to being natural and unguarded that my daughter and I moved outside of the city. This meant a farm in upstate New York. We lived in the country because I felt more capable of living an unobserved life there. The particles shift under observation. I certainly felt that when we were living in Brooklyn. Now she has returned to the same neighbourhood she lived in with Ledger. I feel strengthened and more capable, but I certainly have an awareness I wish I could shed, because it does change how you move through the world. In fact, Williams has always trusted her own compass. Just before Ledger died, she made her most grubby and naturalistic film yet, Wendy and Lucy, released in 2009, about a homeless woman and her lost dog. Crew of six, no makeup or hair washing for three weeks. Back then, says its director, Kelly Reichart, she had heavy people on her team, and they did not want her to come to Portland to make this film. I was amazed that someone at that point in her career and at her age did it, despite that. She's always been a very independent thinker, very no bullshit. She's a weird mix of very trusting and very confident. Very on the button, too. Wendy and Lucy was a big hit at Cannes, where, last year, Williams and Reichardt's fourth film together, Showing Up, also premiered. That early self-reliance was paying dividends, likewise Peel's ad hoc conservatoire. In 2009, after seven years of trying... Williams, Gosling and Derek France finally had the chance to make Blue Valentine, an indie drama about a crumbling marriage. But Williams felt that she couldn't leave Matilda for the shoot and, heartbroken, pulled out. France drew a circle on the map of everywhere an hour's drive from her home and the production relocated to accommodate her. Her performance, raw as a fistfight, led her to her first Best Actress nomination – she earned her second a year later as Marilyn Monroe in My Week with Marilyn, a film about the making of The Prince and the Showgirl. Blue Valentine meant living with Gosling as his wife for a month, during the day anyway. My Week with Marilyn sounds less pleasant. I cried every single day leaving that set, she says today, and probably a few times during the day, because I was in the midst of growing pains. Maturing as an actor felt, to Williams, akin with growing into her body as a child. It's like how it feels to have literal growing pains where your bones are stretching and you wake up in the middle of the night crying and crawling to your parents because you are in so much pain. It's an abruptly horrible image, and it's hard not to feel that Williams would, at various points in her life, have benefited from better protection. I should have said no, she says of Marilyn today. I had no training, no mode of preparation, no business in doing it. Williams did not attend drama school. She only finished high school by correspondence course. Any attempt at impersonation of the most iconic star of the past half century was likely to be highly scrutinised. So why say yes? Her eyes flutter shut. I want something for myself that is beyond what I know I am capable of. She opens her eyes, face fantastically wide and peaceful. And now... Twelve years after having played that part, I have my legs under me and I can come and go to my work in a state of joy. Speak to any of Williams's Fableman's co-stars and, unbidden, 
they talk about this joyfulness. Reichardt too. She's definitely more happy, she says. She always seemed very longing when I first knew her. She had a lot to prove. Now she's able to relax into the moment. Seth Rogen emails to say, Michelle has a genuine love for performing that's infectious. She's joyful on set, focused, and exudes an energy that makes you feel lucky to be there because she genuinely seems to feel lucky to be there. Also, her ability to fully commit to a character at the drop of a hat is truly a wonder to behold. In The Fablemans, Rogan is the fly in the ointment, Bert's best friend Benny, a de facto member of the family and the reason it falls apart. Spielberg has said he initially blamed his father for the split. The film reassesses that through 76-year-old eyes and finds no one at fault, least of all Leah. Her decision to leave was agony, but to stay might have killed her. When she gave up her dream of being a concert pianist, she experienced a premonition of death. Williams says. She allowed part of herself to fall off. That experience, I think, made it impossible for her to live through that again. She did something that caused pain, cleaving, alienation, but she did it because she was deeply in touch with who she was. It was all truly an act of love. She loved herself enough, she loved this man enough, and she had to put enough love into her children to know that they were going to survive this thing. I think that that kind of courage can be very inspiring. Many magazine covers have been devoted to Williams's love life. She's been linked to actor Jason Segel and filmmaker Carrie Fukunaga, the artist Dustin Yellen, novelist Jonathan Safran Foa, and musician Connor Oberst of Bright Eyes. In 2019, there was a short-lived marriage to the songwriter Phil Elverim, she and Kale met on the set of Fosse Verdon and married in March 2020. Hart was born that summer. Reichardt reports theirs is a house of much contentment and not a lot of sleep. But I think Tommy only needs four winks a night. Kale is Jewish, working on a movie of Fiddler on the Roof, and the couple are raising their sons with Judaism as part of our family culture and their childhood education, Williams says. She is not Jewish. Given recent Jewface controversies, such as Helen Mirren in the imminent Golda Meir film, plus the fact Leo was sufficiently devout to later open a kosher cafe, did Williams ever have qualms about playing Spielberg's parents? You know, she says, I didn't. My feeling was, these are his parents, and if he has chosen myself and Paul, I'm going to trust him. Plus, it was a world she had experience of. Growing up, the neighbours on both sides were Jewish. The discourse, the tradition... The rituals spoke to me. It resonated very differently from my family. I have a Nordic background, she grins. I come from a people who hold things in. Yet, in 2017, she had evolved sufficiently to affect real-world change by speaking out. Williams had learned that while she was reportedly paid $1,000 for her reshoot work on Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World, they had to hastily swap Kevin Spacey for Christopher Plummer. Her co-star, Mark Wahlberg, received $1.5 million. She blew the whistle on the discrepancy and said it had left her paralysed in feelings of futility. The case kick-started Hollywood's pay parity revolution. On Fosse Verdon, Williams made the same as her co-star, Sam Rockwell. Does it feel good or bad to have money now? For the first time in our conversation, she stalls. It's a hard question. 
it's something I'd have to reckon with before I really know how to talk about it. She also edges around specifics on hashtag MeToo, but when I say I'm surprised more people weren't brought down, she has the look of someone who knows where the skeletons are buried. Maybe there's still hope for that. What she will say is that she sees the fruits of the movement all the time. Boy oh boy do I ever, she says when I ask if the young actors on The Fablemans were more confident than she used to be. I did not possess any grace or calm, nor did any of my contemporaries. I was raised in the 80s. Selfhood wasn't put into young women, and now it is. I get to see it in my own daughter and I can't take my eyes off her. It's a glorious miracle to behold that I never thought I would witness in my lifetime. When Williams talks about Matilda rather than about being her mother, she speaks slightly differently. She speeds up. Concerns over exact expression are overtaken by enthusiasm. I thought I would have to teach my daughter how to subvert herself and crawl underneath the system to keep herself safe. And, instead... The system has exploded and these young people act with compassion, integrity and righteousness. I have the chills talking about it. These girls aren't prey. These girls are already victorious. I love to sit back and watch them in the world and know that it is safer and more inclined in their direction than it was for me. I wonder how different Williams would be, as both person and performer, had she been born 20 years later. After an hour talking to her, I'm still not quite sure what she's like, beyond friendly and intense. I think that's partly because she wants to be a work in progress. My work over the last decade is to grow my own force field and allow my spirit to expand, she says. I think, energetically, I'm a much smaller person than Mitzi or Gwen or Marilyn. But these women have worked on me. They have worked through me. They have made me a better person and mother and artist because I've been able to be under such deep influence. I find that while I am learning to become them, they are also teaching me how to expand my definition of my own selfhood. She rubs her forehead and smooths her hair. It's 8am and soon it'll be feeding time. She starts to shuffle towards the end of the bed. Does she ever find herself feeling maternal towards Spielberg too? She pauses. Yeah, you know, I do, she says. As recently as yesterday, we were in a room and I caught a feeling from him and I wanted to be there for him in a certain way. But more as Michelle than Mitzi, she adds. She adjusts her t-shirt and smiles. And not that maternal. That was Girls Today Aren't Prey. They are victorious. Michelle Williams on hashtag MeToo, money and playing Spielberg's mum by Catherine Shord. Read by Robin Holdaway. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Robin Holdaway and William Vanderpoy and presented by me, Savannah Ayode greaves this episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.